0: Hello and welcome to another very special episode of the Surviving Constitutional Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cameron Shamsabad. Following from our last episode concerning the alien's power, found in the Commonwealth Constitution, we now follow up with another unique power in the Constitution, namely the Race Power, found at Section 5126. The reason I say this power is again unique is that unlike other Western democracies which have moved toward removal of racial powers and laws, and have created constitutional limits on such laws, Australia, by contrast, has a specific subject matter power, which permits the federal government to make race-specific laws. This power isn't subject to any further rights protections, nor is it subject to any express limitations within it. So today we'll be covering why this power was put into the Commonwealth Constitution, some of its relevant case law, and we'll also make a quick discussion at the end of the of some comparative international principles, specifically the antithetical principles which are founded in the US 14th Amendment. So if you're not already, please sit back, get comfortable and let's dive into this topic. As always in Constitutional Law, we should start with the relevant text of the Constitution. To that end, we need to look again at section 51. We find the relevant power at subsection 26, the clause stating, The Parliament shall, subject to this Constitution, have power to make laws for the peace, order and good government of the Commonwealth, with respect to, subclause 26, The people of any race for whom it is deemed necessary To make special laws. This, of course, is the amended version of the clause. I've read that on the basis that our relevant case law arises from the post-amendment period. Nonetheless, it's worthwhile for us to embark upon a history of this provision and how it started out. Now, the history of this clause has its roots in the earliest constitutional conventions While this clause was omitted from Andrew Inglis Clark's original 1891 proposed draft constitution, it was an early addition debated by the delegates at the Sydney Convention. It remained in the constitution in one form or another, with the caveat being that the power would not be extended to allow the federal government control over Aboriginal Australians nor Maoris in New Zealand, that obviously being noted as New Zealand were initially flirting with the idea of joining the Australian Federation in the early part of the 1890s. Ultimately, the main debate which which seems to have occurred around this clause in the Conventions, and that the framers were largely concerned with, wasn't whether it was correct or moral for the government to make racial laws, but rather whether the power should be exclusive federal jurisdiction or whether it should be concurrent. This, obviously, being a sign of the times in which these terms were being debated, colonial Australia naturally and expectedly being quite different to modern Australia in terms of its racial sensibilities. At the Melbourne Convention in 1898, the clause received its final touches. Some of our most prominent framers, such as Isaac Isaacs and Edmund Barton, were, for example, supporters of the race power, Notably, both of these men ended up on the High Court as well in the first 20 years of its jurisdiction. While the immigration and aliens power were intended initially to control the entry of foreigners into Australia, the race power was created according to Quick and Garin, two also of our framers, to give the Commonwealth government an ambit of power to, and I quote, deal with the people of any alien race after they have entered the Commonwealth, to localize them within defined areas, to restrict their migration, to confine them to certain occupations, or to give them special protection and secure their return after a certain period to the country whence they came." Quote. The intention in relation to this power, therefore, was to create racial laws which were overtly negative, as well as potentially beneficial, in some cases. However, Barton, for example, Famously spoke in support of the power by asserting the power was necessary to, and I quote, regulate the affairs of the people of coloured or inferior races who are in the Commonwealth, end quote. The intentions seem, from these segments of our history, rather overt and rather clear that this power was specifically to be discriminatory in its nature. The intention of the framers being quite clear. And the majority which emerged viewed the power as granting the Commonwealth a plenary power to make racially specific laws. The only caveat at the time of its adoption being, on the original language, that Indigenous people were not caught by the power. Aboriginal peoples were, under the original constitution, subject to the exclusive racial jurisdiction of state governments. Now that famously changed in 1967 when the Australian constitution was amended to remove the limitation granting the Commonwealth jurisdiction to make racially specific laws for aboriginal people as well. On the 1st of March 1967, Prime Minister Harold Holt introduced the Constitutional Alteration Aboriginals Bill, which proposed the deletion of the words, other than the aboriginal race in any state, from section 5126, as well as the deletion of section 127 of the Constitution. Both amendments were successful at the subsequent referendum. In doing so, the Federal Government completed its concurrent power by expanding it to now cover Indigenous Australians, effectively that the Federal Government could make laws with respect to any race now within Australia. The state of affairs up to the current day is coloured by the post-amendment language of this clause, and may be summarised in two Short sentences. First, that both the states and the federal government, or the Commonwealth, can make racial laws, however, the latter will prevail to the extent of any inconsistency per the requirements of section 109 of the Constitution. And the second, the Commonwealth can now make special laws with regards to any race, including Aboriginals. It's after the emergence of this second point that we start to see our High Court case law develop in respect of the race power. The first major case which touched upon the race power was the fairly famous matter of Kuwata and Bielke-Peterson, 1982, which you can find at Volume 153 of the Commonwealth Law Reports, starting at page 168. The facts of the matter are as such. In 1974, Kuata, an indigenous man who identified as part of the Wick tribe, and a number of other stockmen planned to purchase the Archer River cattle station which covered much of the Wick people's traditional homeland using funds provided by the Aboriginal Land Fund Commission they approached Remington Rand an American businessman who owned the station by way of a pastoral lease who agreed to sell them the lease in February 1976 however the Commission made a contract to purchase the property, but before the sale could be completed, it was blocked by the government of Queensland. Bjelke Peterson, the Queensland Premier at the time, opposed the sale because he did not believe that Aboriginal people should be able to acquire large areas of land within Queensland, a view which was reflected in official cabinet policy. By this stage, the Racial Discrimination Act 1975 of the Commonwealth had been enacted which prohibited racial discrimination broadly. As such, Kuwata argued that the Queensland decision to block the sale on racial grounds was a breach of the Discrimination Act. The matter made its way to the High Court of Australia. In response to the argument that the Queensland decision was in breach of the Racial Discrimination Act, the state government of Queensland simply responded by impugning the constitutionality of the Racial Discrimination Act itself. Relevantly, Bielke peterson argued that section 5126, which allows the Parliament of Australia to make laws for the people of any race for whom it is deemed necessary to make special laws, did not apply to the Act since it prohibited discrimination against people of all races. It was not race-specific, nor was it a special law. This argument ultimately was accepted by Chief Justice Gibbs, who relevantly found, and I quote, The Parliament may deem it necessary to make special laws for the people of a particular race, no matter what race. If the Parliament does deem that necessary, but not otherwise, it can make laws with respect to the people of that race. The opinion of Parliament that it is necessary to make a special law need not be evidenced by an express declaration to that effect. It may appear from the law itself. However, a law which applies equally to the people of all races is not a special law for the people of any one race. End quote. The position of the Chief Justice was broadly endorsed by Justices Wilson, Stephen, Aiken and Brennan. Meanwhile, Justices Mason and Murphy simply refused to deal with the matter of the race power, as they found that the law was validly characterised under the broad external affairs power, which we have previously discussed, this on the basis that Australia was a signatory at the time to multiple international instruments requiring non-discrimination on the basis of race. The dissenters, Chief Justice Gibbs along with Justices Stephen and Aiken did not agree with this characterisation. Nonetheless, the court was clear on the race power itself, that broad laws which were not racially specific did not meet the definition of the power. The issue next arose in the Tasmanian Dam case, 1983, which you can find at volume 158 of the Commonwealth Law Reports, starting at page 1. This case concerned a dispute between the state of Tasmania and the Commonwealth over the building of a hydroelectric dam in a federally listed national park. The state sued, alleging that the federal act was unconstitutional. The Commonwealth, of course, sought to defend its law, in part on the basis that it protected indigenous cultural sites within the park. That this was required, again, according to both international treaty and on the basis of special racial protection. A majority of the High Court, including Justices Mason, Murphy, Brennan and Dean, agreed that the federal law could be characterised as a special racial law. Chief Justice Gibbs, along with Justices Wilson and Dawson, dissented on this point. The dissenters focused their judgement on the fact that the terms of the law were directed at preservation of archaeological sites which were of, quote, significance to all mankind, not just one race. Therefore, the Heritage Act was not a special racial law. This again, hearkening back to the previous case, where the court had found that a broad law, although dealing with racial topics, did not qualify as a special law. Following the emergence of native title by statute, The issue of the race power again arose before the High Court of Australia in the Native Title Act case, 1995, which you can find at volume 183 of the Commonwealth Law Reports, starting at page 373. This decision involved the Western Australian Government challenging the Native Title Act, 1993, of the Commonwealth. In this case, the Warora peoples relied on the Racial Discrimination Act 1975 and Section 109 of the Constitution to challenge the extinguishment of native title under the Land Titles and Traditional Usage Act 1993 passed by WA. The Court held that the West Australian legislation was invalid because it was inconsistent with the Racial Discrimination Act and the Native Title Act. In this case, the Court ruled by a strong majority that the special requirement does not necessarily um, mean that the law must be necessary it must simply provide a differential operation upon the people of a particular race this either conferring a right or benefit or imposing a special obligation or potentially disadvantage on people based on their race the question of necessity the court found is not one that is dealt with. The Native Title Act effectively did so, and as such the WA statute was inconsistent and inoperative under Section 109 of the Commonwealth Constitution, the Native Title Act of course, conferring upon the Indigenous population of Australia particular rights to make land claims. Nonetheless this case raised a very important question, namely whether a law could confer a disadvantage or whether, specifically for Indigenous people, the race power could only be used beneficially. This was the principal issue in the case of Cartagnieri and the Commonwealth, 1998, which you can find at volume 195 of the Commonwealth Law Reports, starting at page 337. This case concerned a group of Indigenous women, Elders, who claimed that a proposed bridge could not be built over the Hindmarsh Island because that site was sacred to them for reasons that could not be disclosed, that were specifically cultural. In 1997, the government of John Howard passed the Hindmarsh Island Bridge Act 1997 which authorised the building of a bridge over um, the waters onto the island itself. Dr. Cartanieri and Neville Golan appealed to the High Court submitting that the act was invalid. The applicants submitted that section 51.26 was restricted so that it could only authorise laws for the benefit of the people of any race generally or in the alternative, particularly For the members of the Aboriginal race. While Chief Justice Brennan and Justice McHugh avoided the question, Justice Gaudron along with Justices Gummo and Hayne separately issued judgments which found that the power could be used to the disadvantage of Indigenous people, not just for their benefit. The main dissent in this case, however, came from Justice Kirby His Honour did agree with the majority that Section 5126 did not need to be directed to all members of a race, but might validly deal with a subgroup. This conclusion was fortified by the reference to special laws. However, Justice Kirby, after giving a lengthy consideration of the 1967 referendum and its significance, held that Section 5126 did not allow for laws to be made for the detriment Of the Aboriginal people. The dissent of Justice Kirby provides the academic and judicial basis for the theory that the race power, at least in respect of the indigenous, is a benefits only power. The inconclusive reasoning of the majority in the Cartanieri case has also left the door open such that the question is not entirely settled, and many academics in Australia still today argue that Justice Kirby was at least in part correct that the race's power has been in its effect changed by the 1967 referendum, specifically in respect of how it affects Indigenous Australians. Now a re-examination almost arose in the case of wurujal and Commonwealth 2009, which you could find at uh, volume 237 of the Commonwealth Law Reports, starting at page 309. However, the court avoided such consideration largely as the law empowering the Northern Territory intervention was expressly related to the Territory's power under section 122, another very broad power to which we will hopefully allocate a future episode of this podcast. As such, in the last 20 years or so, there have been a number of reforms proposed to deal with the race power, the most sensible arguably being that it should be abolished entirely, however some have also contemplated that it should be replaced with an indigenous beneficial clause and or a provision prohibiting racial discrimination. Outside of these largely academic and policy discussions, however, very little action has been taken to address the race power and very few court cases have emerged to actually limit or, or deal with its interpretation. Notably, of course, the Uluru Statement in 2017 made no reference to, the, to any proposed reform of the race power. With the history and case law stated in respect of the power, it now puts us in a position where we can have a short discussion of the broader context of constitutional theory. As noted at the outset, Australia is somewhat rare in that this potentially negative discriminatory racial power still remains constitutionally enshrined and unlimited by any express rights protection. The most immediate contrast that can be drawn is with that of the United States of America, whose 14th Amendment over time developed through successive US Supreme Court decisions to injunct racially specific laws on both the state and federal level. This was something our framers were eminently aware of, and Quick and Garren say as much noting that our race power is the effective antithesis to the 14th Amendment. However, it was not always intended to be so, and indeed Andrew Inglis Clark, while not a delegate to the Melbourne Conventions, had been corresponding from Tasmania to the likes of Edmund Barton, quite passionately imploring the Convention to approve his proposed Tasmanian Amendment, which effectively adopted entirely. The language of the US 14th amendment. However, this was voted down at the Melbourne Convention, as the chorus of framers such as Isaacs and Barton argued that it would produce similar case law as that in the US, which injuncted the power of states to make racial laws. In particular, reference was made, at the time, to the decision of yickwo and Hopkins which you can find at volume 118 of the U.S. Law Reports, starting at page 356. This 1886 case was decided by the U.S. Supreme Court and the court ruled that a law that is race-neutral on its face, but is administered in a prejudicial manner, is an infringement of the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. The Court gave this ruling in the context of a Californian licensing scheme, which on its face was general, however administered in a manner that was prejudicial to Chinese-Americans. Isaacs, in Australia, made particular reference to this during the Convention debates, on racial and also protectionist grounds, arguing that a 14th Amendment-like clause would refute any racial powers of the state or Commonwealth governments and prevent such governments from creating labour laws which were prejudicial towards foreign workers, specifically the Chinese. And so while in the US there has been a robust development of constitutional law over more than a century concerning the prohibition of racial discrimination by public authority, in Australia the race power has produced a spotty and lukewarm jurisprudence whereby the existence of the power now sits in contradiction to the broad acceptance of anti-racism by all levels of society and government. This power, which could be enlivened at any time to the prejudice of a particular racial group, as arbitrarily defined by government, provides a future basis for odious lawmaking. However, quite incredibly, no effort has yet been made to abolish this power. Indeed, The upcoming voice referendum avoids the topic entirely, and if anything, seeks to only further entrench more references to race within our constitution, the referendum being again another topic which requires its own episode in order to do justice to its detail. So to sum up today's episode, we discussed the race power and its history from the earliest constitutional convention up to the present day. We discussed the relevant jurisprudence and briefly looked at the antithetical scheme of constitutional law which was established in the US after the adoption of the 14th Amendment and some of the rights protection which arose from that. We also briefly discussed the lack of meaningful reform on this power and the risks it produces in respect of potential future racial lawmaking. The race power provides an excellent example of what happens when bad ideas are implemented into the Constitution. They simply sit there and pose risks to the liberty of future generations. It is a timely reminder, I believe, that our current generation should be weary of amendments that seek to inflate or implement odious concepts such as race further into our Constitution. With that said, and after what has shaped up to be A somewhat complex, though short, episode. We can conclude here. I do hope that you found today's episode useful and thought-provoking. Noting that this episode comes out sometime after the last, I want to also thank my listeners for keeping up to date and sticking with me. This, This platform requires a lot of time and work. And in addition to my professional practice, academic work, and my family life, can be hard to find time to make regular editions. So thank you again for joining me. On the next episode, I hope to discuss the taxation power. Now I always hope that you'll join me on the next episode of the Surviving Constitutional Law Podcast, but until then, always remember to keep reading.